Sometimes you need someone to be around you Someone to sit down and pour you short chew But sometimes saying goodbye to familiar folks is the only way Sometimes that's when you finally find your space Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording in Tokyo. And with me, as always, in Fukuoka, Japan, is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors, and it's not that often that we are truly, honestly surprised by a distilled beverage. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for a combined three decades and we're very excited to share them with you through this podcast. Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Christopher, as always. I'm sure I have something clever to say here. Give me a minute. <laughs> I'm still recovering from, from dousing myself in, uh, in spirit here. Um, maybe that's what I say. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I, yeah, retell I had, that story. Yeah, had a little um, cap difficulty opening the bottle of uh, what I'm sipping on and ended up taking a shower in a distillate that we'll talk about a little bit later. So I, I, I've been better as I've started an episode, I guess. <laughs> We're off to a good start. It's only 1 p.m., folks. But uh, yeah, you know, kind of par for the course with the folks behind Japan Distilled. But anyways, we are talking spirits, of course, and we're going to focus today specifically on a recent experience that Stephen and I had together at Mitosaya Botanical Distillery in Chiba which is east of Tokyo, where I live. It was quite the journey, wasn't it? it? It really was. The distillery is actually situated in what used to be the Chiba Prefectural Botanical Gardens. These were actually medicinal gardens that had been built by the prefecture to preserve local flora. For example, there's a lily pond and that sort of thing. After the bubble popped, the Japanese economy went south and tax revenue dried up. The prefecture decided they couldn't continue to carry on having this public space of this botanical garden that isn't that easy to get to, I guess is a, a polite way of saying it. So they put it up for sale and uh, it was uh, acquired by the owner of, of the Mitosaya Botanical Distillery. And it is a bit of a hike, right? <laughs> it was. It was certainly a hike. Stephen was very gracious in driving us out there the morning after our big Hanami party. We both were pretty much recovered from that excursion, from that event. But I don't know if we were truly prepared for the shenanigans, actually not just shenanigans, the bull shenanigans that are part <laughs> and parcel with using the freeway in and out of Tokyo, where they've essentially, they're trying to move away from cash. And so there are certain ramps that you cannot use anything but the ETC, what would that be the equivalent of in the States, Stephen? It's basically like the, the automatic pass systems that you have that you hang in your window or you have it on your dashboard. I forget what they're called. I think each state has a different name for it. Sure. Like in Florida, it was called Sun Pass. It's basically these automatic toll deduction systems. Easy Pass, I think, is what's used in the in the Northeast. One, Christopher, you said freeway. There's nothing free about those ways. <laughs> no, that's true. That's, these, uh, these are all toll yeah. roads. Now, yeah. just a public service announcement. If you're considering renting a car in Tokyo, don't. Okay. <laughs> I decided to rent the car because it was going to be a two and a half to three hour public transportation ride to get out there. And it was an hour and 15 
according to Google Maps, to drive there. But not when you don't have an ETC card, which you can request from the rental company, but you need to do it when you make your reservation, which I did not do. So we ended up having to find an entrance that took cash, which took us about 45 minutes just to get onto the highway. (laughs) And then the hour and 15 was pretty pretty close to correct. Sure. Uh, Once we got on the highway, we didn't have many delays because we were leaving the city basically uh, late morning. Uh, So we we got out there in time to have a little lunch and then get to the distillery. So it wasn't that bad going in. It was coming back that it became an absolute bull shenanigans event. Yeah. We hit rush hour. Yeah. Well, on top of everything. We were trying to avoid that. But then the first sign of trouble was when we got in the car to drive back and the navigation system told us it was going to be an hour and 35 minutes, which was fine. And within five minutes of getting on the road, it told us it was going to be two hours and 15 minutes Yeah, because there was a 40 minute delay just getting to the tunnel still in Chiba prefecture. And then it started raining. Yep. Uh, And then we, once we got back to Tokyo, it took us an extra 90 minutes probably to find an exit that we thought we could use because we needed one that would accept cash. Yeah. And then there was no toll gate. And then there was no gate on the exit ramp. We could have used any exit ramp and we would have saved ourselves 90 minutes, but probably, yeah, it was a, it was a driving adventure, something we won't soon forget. It was a character building experience. It was, and we're memorializing it in this podcast episode. So, oh, geez. Anyway, now that we've exposed that trauma, <laughs> the, the lovely part of the trip was what happened in between those uh, annoying driving experiences. And that was visiting this distillery. All of the credit for this entire project goes to the, the founder and the owner, Hiroshi Eguchi, who was actually a bookseller in Tokyo working for this kind of offbeat bookstore. And his life took an unexpected turn when he was getting a haircut, of all things. I think this is starting to happen in like hipster barber shops in Brooklyn and that sort of thing. But there's a lot of places in Japan where you can actually have a drink oh, yeah. while you're getting your haircut as like a little added bonus. And his stylist shared Monkey 47 gin with him. This is back in about 2000, 2001. So very early days of Monkey 47. And it completely blew his mind. It was a revelation so much so that he decided to recreate the distilling traditions of the Black Forest in Southern Germany in Japan, so much so that he actually contacted Christoph Keller, the master distiller at Black Forest Distillers, who makes Monkey 47, and ended up being able to go and learn from him. So he ended up going to Europe and becoming an apprentice and learning how to make eau de vie, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so we we talked about eau de vie in episode 30. We mentioned Mitosaya Distillery in that episode. So we have talked about him before, but we didn't really know him at the time. Right. Just to go back to your comment about drinking while having your hair done. One of the stylists that I sometimes go see down in Kagoshima Prefecture when I have a spare moment and can get my hair trimmed in her salon, you're more than welcome to bring drinks. And I always bring one for her. She always declines because, of course, she's using a sharp implement near my face. (laughs) But yeah, just sit there sipping a beer or two high or whatever. Yeah, so he kind of just had his world turned upside down on him while he was doing that thing that we sometimes do just at the barbershop, drinking a cold one. And, you know, I I wouldn't call him a massive student of other distilling traditions. I think he really does sort of like to do things really in his own manner. Mm -hmm. 
But he does pay a little bit of attention, certainly. The major focus for him has always been Southern Germany, I think, and the Eau de Vie traditions there. And part of his big thing was doing something similar, but with ingredients that maybe they don't have access to in Southern Germany. That's right. Perfect place for him to set up the distillery in this former prefectural botanical garden. Absolutely. We got to know him a little bit last year when he caught wind of our podcast episode about Eau de Vie. And then he recommended that Popeye Magazine interview us for their drinks issue. It ended up being an interview over Zoom, Christopher and I and Eguchi-san. The three of us were on the Zoom together. And of course, we chatted and said, oh, we'd love to come visit the distillery. And then we finally made time to do that. Yeah, it's uh, issue 905, the September 2022 issue of Popeye, which retails for 890 yen. In Japan, and you can find a little sketch of the two of us alongside Mr. Eguchi on page 36, as well as some sketches of some other drinks, including a bottle from Mitosaya, a bottle from Empirical, even a bottle from Honkaku Spirits. And it's a nice little interview. It was a fun experience. And I think he was a little bit surprised when we contacted him and said, Hey, we want to come and visit you. And he said, well, wh- wow, what, what made you guys come all the way out here for this? And, and we just said, you invited us. <laughs> so we're, we're here. <laughs> yeah, be careful what you offer to, to the two of us. <laughs> yep. Unfortunately, I think because of the pandemic, the world's changed in, in unexpected ways. And so, you know, Zoom meetings have become very common. I used to go to Tokyo for meetings a lot prior to the pandemic. And now most of those meetings are, are happening online. But because of the Hanami party, I knew that I would be up in Tokyo. And obviously, you're much closer to Chiba from Tokyo than you are from Fukuoka. So we decided to kill two birds with one stone. Only barely the way we drive. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, honestly, if I had flown in, in into Narita, that would have probably been faster. That would have been uh, smarter. Yep. Yeah, we, we went out to visit him. And, and it was a... You and I have been to a lot of distilleries. Mm-hmm. Uh, between the two of us, several hundred, right? Yep. Now, of course, mostly shochu and awamori distilleries, but we've been to whiskey distilleries, gin distilleries, rum distilleries, sure, etc. I've never been any place like this. Mm. It is so unique, unlike anything I expected. I guess the the first thing that struck me was we didn't actually go into the distillery until we'd been there for over an hour. That's true. We'll post pictures in the show notes, but essentially you're in a garden. Yeah, And it's like behind a baseball field, right? Which is still, I think, used unlike the garden, which has now become more private property. But the buildings on the property are all the existing buildings that were there when it was a garden. So you're really talking about like the gift shop, some greenhouses, a couple of outbuildings for equipment uh, and that sort of thing. And I guess he's built one permanent structure since he uh, took it over. But everything else was just existing buildings that he's adapted into the office and the distillery and and the tasting room. Right. The tasting room is actually one of the old greenhouses, and that's where we we started. But almost as soon as we sat down uh, and began to chat, he's he said, "Well, I think it's going to be easier if we just walk around." Mm-hmm. And so we end up walking around the garden grounds, and he's pointing out all the different sections and what's in them, and what's in bloom, and what's not. It was more like a botanical tour than it was a distillery tour, at least at the beginning. Certainly the entire first half, we were walking around the grounds, snapping off, you know, leaves and nibbling on 
flowers and chasing their dog Moogie around the property and watching him chase things up trees. And, and they had, you know, different zones that, you know, clearly this zone over this little area over here is for fruit trees and, and things of that nature. And then uh, we took a detour up the hill a little bit to see the, the beekeeper who had come in to tend the hives. And I was quite impressed by Eguchi-san's bravery because the beekeeper was in full beekeeping garb and Eguchi-san walked right up next to him without any protection on, you know, nothing to protect his face or his exposed skin. So dutifully, Stephen and I did the same, <laughs> which it was not, it was not lost on us that we were certainly tempting fate there for about five minutes, but had a nice little discussion. Then we went back down and, you know, of course the cherry trees were in blossom and some other trees were either just past the full bloom or were on their way. You know, at one point he's going, Hey, can you please jump up and, and grab that leaf? Because it was like, <laughs> <laughs> I looked at Steven, Steven looked at me. Of course I ended up being the jumper. And, uh, so <laughs> just snapping stuff off the lowest branch to, to s smell and taste. And, that we would learn later is very much part of his process. And we'll get into that in a, a little bit later about his philosophy and everything. But it was a it was a garden tour at first. It really was. Yeah, and it was fascinating. Like he basically knew where everything was and what kind of aroma or flavor it would impart because he spent so much time with those uh, botanicals. There were some things that I never would have guessed. He actually was at one point foraging kind of what I thought were the weeds because the garden's not well kept anymore because it's it's just him and his family and and one employee that run the place. So he just he's let a lot of it kind of go to seed. But he just started kind of foraging through the weeds and he picked something up and he breaks it open and he hands it to me and I smell it and it smells like curry. Hmm. It smelled like it was just incredible that this leaf smelled like, you know, such a complex uh spice. Some of the flowers were beautiful aromas, and then some of the leaves just had really strong, pungent aromas. And I'd never even thought to do this, like walking through the forest, you know, back in the States, just snapping things off and smelling them. And just watching him do it was was just fascinating. And I think this is where, I think it was the moment we kind of, our, our man crush developed. <laughs> yeah, I think that was, right? that was certainly the beginning of it. I mean, if it's not just his very affable manner and his just how relaxed and easy to be around he is mm -hmm. i don't know whether he's a mad bookseller or a mad you know alchemist or everything probably everything in between but there's just this sense of well let's see what happens today you know who knows what this what this adventure is going to turn out like and uh you know that's how he starts his day before he starts his his fermentations he goes out and he interacts with nature he has this calm to him. Like he's not in a rush for anything. Right. I think that maybe for him, it was, you know, the stress of, of Tokyo has washed away and he's replaced it with the calm of rural Chiba. Cause it really is a beautiful location in the foothills, uh, surrounded by trees. You know, basically it's, it was cut out of a forest essentially just a really, you know, nice, beautiful spot, but there's very little of it that feels, um, just thinking about the ground, how the, the grounds almost reflect his personality, because there's very little about the place that feels commercial. Mm -hmm. Apart from like 
painting the words Mitosaya on the side of one of the outbuilding in really big, bold letters, there's very little that even suggests that there's a business there. Yeah. Nothing's pristine and perfect the way that you would expect if it was open for for tours or, or for, uh, you know, a, with a more commercial focus, because he really is just in this, this period of exploration. And fortunately, he's found a, a really strong fan base among liquor stores and bar owners and, 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 and drinkers as well. Yeah. So everything he makes sells out pretty quickly. And that's also because he can't make much. Yeah, he really cannot. Yeah, maybe we get into his, uh, you know, we, when we finally entered the distillery, mm. it was small. It was very small. We're used to shochu distilleries where you need a lot of floor space for all those fermentations that are running for for weeks on end. The actual production area, I would say, is smaller than Mushagaishi's uh, Jufuku distillery, which is one, if not the smallest distillery I, I've been in, in the shochu world. Oh, it's, it is minute and... I, I guess part of part of the reason why they can do that is because their still is so small. The still, when you walk into the building, if all the doors are open, they basically sort of retrofit this old, I think it was a brick building. It's got a very interesting internal shape with uh, basically cutting it off into these, well, it's not quite qu- quadrants, but uh, you kind of have to, you have to go experience it. Five rooms, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the still is right kind of facing the door if all of the internal dividers are open. And it's only got a 150 liter capacity. Mm-hmm. So that really does limit them in many senses in terms of how ambitious they can be with their fermentations. Now, they do have a two and a half ton wooden, uh, you know, a kioke, a huge vat that they use occasionally, but more often they're using smaller vessels for their fermentation, some as small as 100 liters. They are very micro in that sense. They are very small (laughs) batch in terms of what they produce. This still is another nod to Germany. I think it is an old German still, Mm -hmm. maybe uh, several decades old, and it really doesn't allow them to really do any real volume. So, when they're done with a run, I mean, they're, we're talking bottles, the, the amount of bottles they can fill, you can count just by, you know, just with a quick glance, you can get the whole flock in view and you're like, oh yeah, that's a couple dozen. Good. <laughs> and that's it. Right. That's the entire thing. Yeah. I think with 150 liters of, that's the still capacity, you could put 150 liters of fermentation in there. Uh, but once you've distilled, you have a much lower yield than that. And it seems that he doesn't get more than about 10 to 15 liters per run yeah. of distillate. Yep. It's a column still, which is not something you see that often. And, but it's like the cutest, smallest column I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And because it would basically fit in, I guess, a high ceiling, one story building. Right? Yeah. It's not very tall at all. It might be what, three, three meters tall? Yeah. Um, nine, 10, 12 feet tall, something like that. Mm-hmm. It's pretty, pretty small. Uh, with those very li- small runs, again, Christopher mentioned there's a two and a half ton tank, so 2,500 liter tank that they can do fermentations in. And when they do that, they can do two runs a day in the still. It takes, what, five or six hours to, to run this still to get one run done. So they can do two a day. And they'll only get through, 
300 liters a day. So if they're doing a 2,500 liter batch of ferment, that's going to take them eight days to distill. Yeah. Yeah. It's very small batch distillation, truly, in every sense of that phrase. And while looking at the still, the still wasn't working when we were there. It was being rinsed out after a distillery run. Oh, which reminds me, when we were outside at one point, the, one of the Kurabito walked by with a, a little dolly and a big old steaming, you know, it was a plastic bucket, essentially, a big wide plastic bucket of steaming sweet potato moromi that had been distilled. The distillation run had just finished and whatever was left in the pot, they had to dispose of. And the way that they did this poor guy in his giant rain boots was pushing this very unstable cart with a very, very temperamental vat of very hot and steaming sweet potato moromi that had had most of the alcohol stripped out of it. And he was uh, wheeling it to the back of the property in order to do something very important with it. And that is make fertilizer. So we, of course, were like, oh, this looks interesting. Let's follow him. So all three of us got in line behind him. What kind of, uh, I don't, you and I didn't really do anything to help, but watched him navigate the mud with this stupid dolly. And then, uh, yeah, he proceeded to essentially recycle it so that they could reuse it later. That's right. The composting area they have set up so that they can, uh, they have rice bran that they use to mix in with the lees of the distillation. They then use that as fertilizer. And then also there are free range chickens that give the family their eggs. So they'll eat some of it and they use others for fertilizer. But it's a great no waste system that they've got going there because they can then fertilize the plants and the trees and everything in the, in the gardens using their own waste products. It's one of these just unscalable concepts, the way that he's got it set up. And it's it's just beautiful to see. Yeah. The other thing, and Christopher mentioned sweet potato, but he wasn't making shochu. No. There was no koji involved. So he, they were actually using the steamed sweet potatoes just as you would in a, in a main fermentation for shochu, but they just went with water and yeast onto that. And so the yeast was actually working on the other sugars that were more readily available. And after I think it was a 30-day fermentation, it would get up to about 10 or 11% alcohol. So that fermentation is about twice as long as a shochu fermentation with lower alcohol yield. But it smelled like, the fermentation smelled like the sweet potato shochu fermentation. It did. And the distillate smelled like, you know, very much like a, a sweet potato shochu. Although it's it's coming off the still at what, about 60, 70% alcohol? Yeah, because of the column. Yeah. He does what he calls one time through the column. So he's he's still capturing a lot of the the flavor and aroma of the fermentation in the way that he does it. Again, very long, you know, five, six hour runs. Really long. Because in shochu with a single pot distillation, I think you usually are hearing three to four hours, I guess is standard, occasionally a little bit faster. Yeah, maximum, I think. And then the, the reason he was using sweet potatoes is because they were in season. Whatever he's making is what's available at that time. Mm -hmm. He's not storing grains. He's not doing all the things that you would normally do in a commercial facility. He's really trying to use local agriculture and the, the the yield that nature is providing at that time of year to make his spirits. And so he doesn't really have brands in the way that we think of them mm. because he'll do a, a batch of something and he'll brand it and he'll bottle it. And that's, you know, batch number 52. The next one he makes might be something completely different. And that's, that's batch number 53. Yeah. And as he's doing that exploration in his garden, he's always thinking about, okay, 
such and such a season is coming up. So I know that that's going to be my base to extract alcohol from, but what botanicals can I get into that to make something different, right? To, to do something unexpected. And sometimes he's just making a straight O to V, just a fruit brandy, you know, an unaged fruit brandy basically. Yep. But other times he's making just really, really wild things. And it's, there seems to be almost no limits to his creativity, which is, is really cool. Yeah. And we were fortunate enough after we got done ogling the still, we moved over to the fermentation room where they have a bunch of these, the big kioke, the huge wooden, um, bar- it's not a barrel, it's just a big wooden vat is right in the center of the room. And there, around it are all of these smaller vessels that they use to do fermentations and, and they also steep um, ingredients and spirit in there. And so he ripped open a sweet potato fermentation for us to smell. And then there was some maceration going on mm-hmm. and each one's different. It seemed like every one of those covered pots was, or, or jugs was different. And it really is just as Stephen just said, whatever was in season at the time or whatever they had a uh, good access to as long as it was quality. But then some of the bottled product is, is kind of bizarre. They had, uh, a, a brand in the office when we went in there and basically we're like kids in a candy shop buying everything we could get our hands on. Um, <laughs> they had Sakura Maro, Maro which is uh, a fun one. I don't know if it's okay to talk about that one right now, but um, it's kind of the, the whole circle treatment mm-hmm. of a cherry tree. Um, and it, it involves a very, very interesting tea that is made from what, Stephen? To put it politely, caterpillar dung. The caterpillars that feast on the sakura, the cherry blossoms or the, or the leaves of the tree, uh, their their dung ends up smelling of uh, cherry blossoms. And so they laid out these blue tarps underneath a, a cherry tree that had been infested with caterpillars. And they collected all of the droppings. And then a group of four of them used tweezers to pull out the valuable stuff and discard the rest of the, you know, the things that had fallen onto the tarps and they made tea from that. And that's one of the ingredients in uh Sakura Amaro, which is very, very Sakura forward Amaro style liqueur. It really is. And I actually took a gin that I had bought. It was made by another distiller he knows in Croatia, actually, that I, I picked up a bottle of that when I was there. I got the Sakura Amaro and then I used the Japanese berumuto, the Japanese vermouth, and I made myself a Negroni, and it was a Sakura Negroni. Wow! It just that that Sakura aroma just carried through, and that was the top note, the high note on that cocktail, and it was delicious. It was a really, really nice drink. Sounds amazing. So I think uh, don't shy away from the caterpillar dung tea. I think it's a it's a nice component in that in that in that drink. Yeah, file that piece of information back in the in the old brain for when you come across some caterpillar poop tea yeah yeah we spent a lot of time in the fermentation room and then of course we moved into a discussion and a perusal of everything that happens after distillation they have this room that is very tastefully very carefully lit it's where they have all of these glass demijohns on shelves with each comprising essentially one batch off of the still and it's beautiful the way it's lit again please check the show notes because we'll pop a photo in there of it and they have a little bit of cask aging going on as well when we asked him about the amount of 
aging, it's, it's really quite brief for all of these different vessels. They really do keep it on the short end, you know, less than a, less than a half of a year for the glass, sometimes as long as a full calendar year if it's in a wooden barrel. He expressed a little bit of hesitation to let the aging um, do too much to adulterate what the natural aromas and esters that are that were captured by the still. So it's quite young, and I guess that's that's not too big of a surprise for me. That was probably one of the the more visually impactful parts of the tour. That room, yeah, really, really beautiful space, and and each. Each of the demijohns had a handwritten description of what was in it. So you kind of walk around and check to see what it was. And I think that my my impression, and I, I may not be completely accurate on this, because there were a lot of plastic storage drums on the floor that I think were holding larger batches of distillate. I think those demijohns, a lot of that might have been his archives mm-hmm. of things that he had made that he wanted to hold on to in case he wanted to try to replicate them in the future. Mm-hmm. Then he also, in another corner, there was a bunch of shelves with the heads and tails from all of his runs. So that he would have that information available yeah. to to smell, to taste, to see what what else could come out of each of those batches that he kept the you know the 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 cuts were inside that you know the, the hearts I guess were inside that demijohn, but everything else he, had, he he was storing and every so often he'd throw some heads or some tails into the still uh, and redistill them into something else if there was a character or compound or component that he yep. wanted to add to the, to the new, the new batch. So just, and it, just such creativity. There's, n- it's like, there's no handcuffs for what he's doing. He can do whatever he wants. So really iconoclastic. Yeah. I think I used that word in our last episode on Awamori, but it, it just, it really struck me how, how much he's not beholden to anybody else's traditions because he started the distillery and he started something that didn't really exist here. There are other brandies in Japan, but there's nothing right like what he's doing. No. And he's had incredible success. I mean, I know that I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think some of his products have found their way into Noma. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Sakura Amaro is actually being used, I believe, in a cocktail at the Noma pop-up in, in Kyoto. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, so he's, he certainly has uh, the attention of the world of distilled uh, spirits globally and then that's filtering out into you know fine dining and, and high-end bars as well so you know gr- great great stuff really interesting right uh experience just to touch on one last thing when he goes to bottle uh, we asked him about filtration and he's like a tiny bit like he does very very little he'll do some chill filtration which will actually separate the oils and then you can take the oils out that way and then he will use the tech method which is <laughs> the saran wrap uh, to drag over the top of the blotter the- yeah, it's saran wrap, saran wrap blotter, which basically pulls the oils off the top of the yep. of the spirit. But he doesn't he doesn't want to filter out much because he's got such beautiful flavors and aromas. And if you take out too much of that with filtration, you're going to lose the almost the ephemerality of the spirit. It really is like there's such such interesting and elegant expressions and everything he makes. And uh, I think he's worried he'd lose that with long aging or with uh, higher filtration. Mm-hmm. Pretty much everything's bottled at at a standard spirit strength between 40 and 42% alcohol. I think some things do go a little lower, a little bit higher, but generally that seems to be his sweet spot, mm-hmm. which I think again is a nod to the, to the German ODV tradition. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we also talked to him a little bit about the, you know, his philosophy and we heard about, of course, the, the things that inspired him, but 
we also really wanted to try and get into his head. And I think the best person to, to explain this to us is Eguchi-san himself. So let's hear him talk about his personal philosophy for how he makes his products. ま、もっとというか、え、フィロソフィーというか、に、その、ま、自然からの小さな発見を形にするっていうことを書いてます。で、ま、できるだけそのものをお酒にするにはどういうやり方がいいだろうかっていうことを考えていくっていう順番で、え、お酒を作っていこうっていうのが、え、僕らの一番の大事にしていることかなと思います。So what he's essentially saying here is that his process, the way that he approaches everything is that he first goes out into nature he interacts with nature and as Stephen explained before, he thinks about what's coming into bloom, what's going to be ready to harvest soon. And he works with those ingredients to try to create something that's both interesting and delicious. As he said several times, it is about Shizen, it's about nature. And that's at the heart of everything that he does. Just to expand from there, he, di he didn't say this during that quote that we just uh, played for you. But one thing he expressed to us when we were in the distillery was that he doesn't always know that something's going to work out really well. That's just not something he can really know. But what he does know is when he has some very interesting and perhaps even unique ingredients that he can work with, and really, it's just this endless curiosity and creativity that goes into everything that they do at Mitosaya. As Stephen said before, there aren't any handcuffs, really. He's, such, he's at such a small scale of production that it's, that question doesn't even come up. Should he be doing this? Should he be doing that? Well, at the scale that he's operating at, he can't easily create the same product on a yearly or a seasonal basis. It's just, that's not what's available to him on his property. And so everything just follows this very, I don't want to say carefree, but it is a very casual and at simultaneously reverent relationship with his natural surroundings. In some ways, it's almost like foraged distilling. Don't don't get me wrong. He doesn't forage for everything that he uses to distill. That would be impossible. But it's it's much closer to nature than agricultural distilling, in the traditional sense. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, the, the the botanical garden is actually quite small. So there's not enough raw material in the garden to actually make a batch. So what he does is once he's come up with a recipe, once he's he's done his research in his garden to find the the fruits and the and the the botanicals and things that he wants to use, he then goes and he finds farmers that have available what he wants. And then he makes basically single farm batch distillations of their, of their agricultural products. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're, they are foraging. Like they, they uh, made a peanut eau de vie that's hand dug peanuts. And so now it might've been a peanut farm, but they went out and they dug them up by hand mm -hmm. and made that part of the process. And they actually have farming Fridays where people come out to the distillery and help 
with gardening and with any planting that they're doing or anything like that. So there really is this connection with local farmers. And when I say local, it's actually throughout Japan because he'll, he'll, he's made distillate from, you know, pears from Niigata, apples from Aomori, Ken, Aomori prefecture, but it's, it is local in the sense of using a single farm. He's not going to large agricultural co- cooperatives to source his ingredients. He's finding a farmer, putting the farm's name on the bottle or the farmer's name on the bottle. Right. And, and really, you know, keeping it really close to, to, the, to the heart of or the soul of what he's trying to do. Yep. I think Christopher and I were walking away from this just with our minds blown. But fortunately, one of us was still coherent enough to ask, is it possible to purchase anything? And he said, oh, you need to come to the to the corner store. And we walked into the office and it was basically the packing area. And they had this one shelf of 500 milliliter bottles and 100 milliliter bottles of anything that hadn't sold out already. And as Christopher said earlier, we were kids in a candy store. It was a little silly. How much? Yeah, $700 each later. Yeah. <laughs> His things are not, are not cheap, as you can imagine. At this scale, there are no economies of scale. There's no, there's no uh, cost savings in anything that he does. If you're, if you're bottling 100, 200, 300 bottles of, of something per brand, and you're designing a label for that and printing the label for that, I mean, those costs are, are, are pretty s- steep. Uh, but yeah, we did, we, mm-hmm. we both came home with quite a few bottles of, of pretty amazing stuff. And he's right. Uh, not everything always works. I've tried uh, most of the things that I purchased. Some of them are absolutely beautiful and some of them are interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, you know, it's not a home run every time. The peanut distillate, for example, is it's so much peanut on the nose and on the on the palate, but the finish goes off. Ah. The finish goes weird. Interesting. Uh, and I don't know what that is, but there was something about that in the finish on, on the peanut that doesn't quite work. And that's just drinking it straight, which is how eau de vie is often consumed. But he does recommend potentially on the rocks or with with sparkling water. So, you know, I'll need to play with it a couple of other ways. But then something else will just be everything about it is pitch perfect. And you couldn't imagine it being any better than what it was. Mm. So it's been really fun to start to taste through all of these uh, with with what he's uh, what what we were able to get uh, with with what with what he had left. Unfortunately, there were what about fifteen or twenty different types that were on the shelves there. Yeah, there was a solid dozen choices, um, both in five hundred and one hundred mil vessels. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I got, I think I got. F- five or six of the big ones and then like a good f- fleet of the smaller ones that some of them are <laughs> using as gifts. But, uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, just so much, so much respect for everything that they're doing there. And, um, to Mr. Eguchi and his, and his wife who works at the distillery as well. And to the rest of the team there, I'm raising my glass to you right now. Kampai, you guys are doing amazing things. Absolutely. No, it's, it's a really, uh, completely as as we mentioned at the top of the Christopher said in the in the intro it's very rare that a spirit completely blows our mind mm. and just everything about how mitosaya operates and everything they're doing is absolutely incredible yeah it really felt like the closest i've seen to a true shokunin in uh distilling traditions here in japan i mean of course we know many shochu makers that are very very much in that master craftsman level uh, and make incredible products, but Iguchi is Iguchi-san is a little bit like he, he's he's on the path to becoming a shokunin, but he's still learning. He's still finding his way. 
mm-hmm. and and to meet him and be able to experience that at, at this time where he doesn't have a set set of products that he's going to be making to become his his main brands he's still just constantly innovating and experimenting and maybe he never will maybe he'll just always be this way just absolutely fascinating experience um i'm very curious chris because we both brought back a bunch of samples and not all of our, not even samples, a bunch of bottles mm-hmm. and not all of them overlap. So I'm curious what's in your glass, what, what you're compying with there a moment ago. I am compying to the good people at Mitosaya with batch number 677, which is called post olive. Oh, nice. I did try that the other day. I did get a bottle of that. That's a good one. I like that one. 42% ABV. Yep. And um, distilled this year Mm. and olives all over the place from front to back and everywhere in between, as as I'm sure you remember. Yep. Yep. Very, very, very interesting. Very soothing for me. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is about olives, but. It's the Italian in you. I guess so. How about you? I really like that olive. I'm going to try to make a martini with that. Like a. Oh, yeah. It screams martini. Martini without the garnish, right? I'm, I'm definitely going to give that a shot. Although it's such a preci- precious distillate, I'm waiting for the right time. Uh, I had opened all of my 100s, and this is the only one I had, I had opened but not tasted yet. I, I opened Loot Root, oh, which is batch 113 from 2022. And it is burdock root, which is gobo in Japanese, something called uyaku, which I'm not sure what that is, timeric and genshin root. So four different kinds of roots. Again, eau de vie, this is 44%. I think that the timeric was actually uh, macerated in it because it's got, it's a bright yellow color. Okay. Yeah. The, the spirit itself. And it was not, it was not aged in wood. So it, it's more of a liqueur. He's still calling it an eau de vie because he can call it whatever he wants because nobody in Japan knows what that is. <laughs> and it's, it's very, very bitter. So you're getting into the Amaro end of things. It's got some sweetness. So I'm wondering if there's some added sugar as well, or maybe some of that honey from the beekeeper, because I know that he uses that in some of his products. Mm -hmm. But I could see using this as the bitter in a Negroni, replacing the Amaro with this. Uh, Sure. And the yellow color could make it, you know, a yellow Negroni, maybe. Um, I'll be playing around with it. Unfortunately, I've only got a 100 ml, so that might be a one one and done cocktail. Yeah, you got to be careful with that. Yeah, so this, I'm looking at the front, I'm, I'm drinking from a 500 ml bottle. And they have very interesting illustrations, very simple. I like the shape of the the label because it's got this rounded top, kind of like the doors in, in the distillery. The freshly expressed organic olives from Katsushige Yamamoto Olive Farm in Shizuoka, which is right on the front label. Nice. Um, in larger, well, same size font maybe as the, you know, the other identifying information. Just... They they use a really interesting ingredients and they're proud of it and they let you know exactly where everything's from. I love it. Yeah, unfortunately, I think with this small, and maybe loot roots just different because it doesn't have any information about the farm and maybe it's because there were four different roots used. Ah, uh, sure. Uh, but it still has still has quite colorful label. His his label art is is a lot of fun. You should check out their uh, Instagram, uh, which is it's a Mito Saya. So I think is is it three T E O S A Y A maybe. Might be their Instagram. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, that's right. The three, three can be pronounced me in Japanese. So yeah, numeral three, T-O-S-A-Y-A. Thinking about all the different expressions of his that you've tried, 
well, which would you say is is your favorite if you could pick one? Um, I I do like the blood orange quite a lot. Mm-hmm. That one's very fun. The Sakura Maro, I just love the story behind it and how they just used, <laughs> they went, they even included the fertilizer, man, you know, so yep. <laughs> I do appreciate that about the process. I'm having a hard time picking just one. I mean, the olive that I'm, the post olive that I'm sipping on right now is also really good. So I don't know. Do you have a favorite? Actually, it was unexpected for me. I picked it up only because I asked him which was his favorite of what was on the shelf uh-huh. that I had because I wanted to buy like one more 100 ml. And now I wish I had gotten a 500. And that's the Mons- Monsieur Lectier pear. Okay. It's pear Le Lectier from Abbe Orchard in Niigata. So it's a pear eau de vie. It's basically an unaged pear brandy. And it is, it's, it's lush. It's sweet. It's got all the pear notes that you would want. I love pear. It's one of my favorite fruits. Mm-hmm. I thought just absolutely beautiful eau de vie. Probably for me, I mean, I haven't experienced a lot of eau de vie, mm-hmm. but in, in my mind's eye of what like a European eau de vie should be, yeah. this is what it should be. Gotcha. Yeah. To beautifully express the fruit that it was made from. Uh, um, but but all of the mouthfeel, all of the 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 uh, the aroma, the texture, everything is just so, so nice. And it was so surprising because that was that was one he recommended rather than me being like, oh, that's interesting. Let me grab that. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about that. Right. Yeah. And you and I both, we bought the weird stuff, right? We got the, sure, got we the got caterpillar it. poop. We got got the olives. We got the, I got one that was yuzu kosho. So it's yuzu sure. fruit. And I got uh, the basil. And black pepper. Yeah. Yep. Right. Got yeah. the kastori, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The sake leaves, but it's not shochu because it's, it's using a column still. Right. Uh, right. But yeah, I, I picked that one up too. Uh, that one's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, we could probably continue to geek out about. Yeah. Enough fanboying for, longer, for but... today. <laughs> yeah. But, right. Uh, anyways, Eguchi-san, if you're listening, many, many thanks to you. Thank you for your hospitality. Thank you for everything you taught us. Thank you for the inspiration. And we'll be back again. Absolutely. I guess a little teaser for folks. Um, we are hoping to plan some events out there. Uh, so, of course, we'll try to give everybody plenty of notice so they can can get their tickets to Japan and and come out for a farm Friday and maybe spend the weekend at the distillery or something like that. But we've got lots of ideas and and uh, we'll start planning. Thank you all very much for listening. If you have not already, then please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you enjoy listening to it. It really does help others find the show. And if you need more information, then please feel free to reach out to us directly on Twitter or Instagram. You can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. And you can reach out to me at Japan Distilled on Twitter or Instagram. Please check out our website, japandistilled.com, for the show notes for this episode and all the other episodes. And please tune into our Japan Distilled show Tuesday, every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern in the U.S. and 10 a.m. Wednesday here in Japan. And of course, don't forget to sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash japandistilled. Kampai. Kampai. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast 
with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. 